Hello, and welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater experiences from March of 2018. We'll hit two Chicago productions and one from Long Beach, California, in addition to a bunch of New York off-Broadway plays and the arrival on Broadway of Jimmy Buffett's musical Escape to Margaritaville. Grabbing a drink right now is not a bad idea, so hit pause and then let's begin. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Let's start off today off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater and a new play entitled The Amateurs. The Amateurs takes us back to 14th century Europe where the Black Death is wiping out the population. We meet a scrappy troupe of medieval pageant players. They are traveling to outrun the disease with their pageant wagon, a movable stage which was used for centuries to present religious mystery or miracle plays. The troupe wants to perfect their act, present it to the Duke, and hopefully be rewarded with permanent, safer residence within the city walls. The story they are rehearsing is Noah's Flood. When the play opens, our actors are performing the Seven Deadly Sins in Mask, although one member has to play both envy and covetousness. As they travel, they are losing members of their troupe to the plague. While this all sounds very grim, The Amateurs is actually quite a bit lighter and funnier than expected. The play is a mashup of situation comedy, history lesson, a challenge to authority, and let's put on a show, juxtaposed with a very good but very long meta section. The playwright Jordan Thompson has a lot to say and is not afraid to take risks. The scenic design by David Zinn creates a black world. Think a simple mound of darkly covered grass. A nifty pageant wagon opens up with painted scenery which is used for rehearsals and performances. One of the major themes in the amateurs is the role of art during times of crisis and uncertainty. How art evolves and comments on the human condition as it did after the medieval period with the Renaissance. Going even further, the play considers more contemporary parallels. I cannot put my finger on what exactly was missing for me in the amateurs. I left the theater more conceptually impressed than intellectually and theatrically satisfied. A fine production with a strong cast, a unique play, but slightly boring too. Now we travel to Chicago and the Looking Glass Theater Company's production of Plantation. Upon entering the theater, the living room is outfitted to showcase the grandeur of a plantation home. A large portrait of a man is prominently displayed. The time is now. The matriarch of the family, Lillian, played by Janet Ulrich Brooks, well, she's finally coming to terms with the passing of her husband two years earlier. She has invited all three of her daughters to the plantation for a meeting. So why the exclamation point in the title? Well, where playwright Kevin Douglas plans to take us has not one degree of subtlety. That is meant as a compliment. When finally going through her husband's possessions, Lillian finds a log of all the slaves bought and sold which had built her family's fortune. Did I neglect to mention that this is wholly and entirely a comedy? As it happens, one of the longest tenured slaves in the log had a last name entered. Thanks to the magic of social media, Lillian is able to track her descendants down. Guess who's coming to dinner? Exclamation point is intentional here. Lillian has three daughters who we quickly learn are a spoiled bitch, an off-kilter middle child who now runs the family business, and a troubled youth. In this play, stereotypes are not hinted at. They are aggressively utilized to wring out every laugh possible. When Lillian's new Facebook friend London, played by Lily Mojeku, 
arrives with her sisters, sit back in your seats and get ready for the fireworks display. Mr. Douglas is embracing farce to confront the combustible tinder of slavery, its profitability, its disgrace, and its import today. And did I mention all of this is outrageously hilarious and not politically correct at all? The powerhouse ensemble here is astonishingly good and fully committed to the tone, which is essential for this piece. As the middle child, Kara, Lindsay Page Morton has become my new standard bearer for a depiction of middle child angst. Tambula Perry's performance of Visiting Madison is deftly imagined, and her physicality is icing on the cake. Looking Glass co-founder David Schwimmer's direction is sure-footed, building to a steady pitch of hilarity and sustaining it for the length of this play. Plantation is a reckoning with America's history of slavery, packaged as grand entertainment. Improbably brilliant this play is. Another play in Chicago, performed at the Mercury Theater, was Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner, A Sort of Love Story. A text I sent during the intermission of Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner, A Sort of Love Story. Quote, Act one of the Gilda Radner thing. A hot mess minus the hot. A bad play. A pretty sizable house. No one is here. Attendance is less than 10% of the house. Maybe less than 5%. Crickets, baby, crickets. Oh, I miss seeing the balcony. Less than 2% for sure. And oddly, nearly all of us are seated in the third row. I'm moving for more fidgeting capacity. End quote. First, let's fix the unwieldy title. A bunny bunny lady, perhaps? Everyone who was around for the launch of Saturday Night Live knows how funny Miss Radner was. The titular Bunny Times Two reference is from a poignant memory of her father. Emmy Award-winning Alan Zweibel wrote this play. The plot revolves around their relationships, from meeting and working together at SNL, through their separate marriages until her untimely death from ovarian cancer. Very little of Gilda's actual work is contained in this piece, which is one of several problems. Act Two does start off with the song Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals from her 1979 Broadway outing, Gilda Radner Live from New York. Dana Tretta plays Gilda and does a fine job conveying her spirit without mimicry or caricature. I also enjoy the antics of Jason Grimm, who played everyone else, such as waiters, cameramen, a taxi driver, Andy Warhol, etc. He provided needed comic relief and distraction from the main storyline. Since this seems to be a very personal memory play, perhaps all of this material is emotionally and factually very real. If a fan who attended her show in 1979 cannot be pulled into the material, then we know why it's mostly crickets. A tall, fake plant has a sizable supporting role here. It is significant as the location where Gilda and Alan first meet. A stagehand moves the plant from place to place around the stage between the frequent scene changes. The plant gets a curtain call. Channeling my best Emily Latella here. Never mind. From Chicago, let's travel to Long Beach, California, the International City Theater and its production of the musical Daddy Long Legs. Visiting Long Beach, staying with friends, and following their recommendation to see Daddy Long Legs proved to be excellent ideas all around. I was not familiar with the loosely adapted 1955 film starring Fred Astaire and Leslie Caron, which I could overhear being widely discussed amongst the audience. Based on her very successful 1912 novel, Jean Webster adapted her story into a play. 
here is what the New York Times said on September 29th, 1914. If you will take your pencil and write down, one below the other, the words delightful, charming, sweet, beautiful, and entertaining, and then draw a line and add them up, the answer would be Daddy Long Legs. The play made Ruth Chatterton a star, and she was later nominated for Best Actress Academy Awards for two pre-code films, Madame X in 1929 and Sarah and Son in 1930. How significant was this story? Films were made by Mary Pickford in 1919, Janet Gaynor in 1931, and there even was a Shirley Temple adaptation in 1935 called Curly Top. This version is a musical first produced in 2009 with subsequent stagings in the West End and Off-Broadway. The effective book was written by John Caird. He's a Tony Award-winning Best Director of both Nicholas Nickleby and Les Miserables. Paul Gordon wrote this beautiful score, which felt like a chamber piece, overflowing with lilting, elegant, moving, character-driven, heartfelt songs. Daddy Longlegs begins at the John Grier home, an orphanage where Jerusa Abbott is the oldest resident at 17. One of the trustees, a quote-unquote Mr. John Smith, becomes her benefactor and sends her off to college to fulfill her promise as a writer. All she needs to do is to write him a monthly letter. Jerusa comes up with his nickname, Daddy Longlegs. This musical traces the lives of these two characters through their letter writing. While the original book and play had more than 20 characters, many of whom are mentioned here, this musical has been structured into an intimate two-person show. We have a good Samaritan using his considerable wealth to allow a smart, heretofore unlucky girl a shot at the opportunity of a lifetime. Ashley Ruth Jones and Dino Nicandros deliver superb acting and singing performances which build from simple beginnings to more complicated characters in an organically developing story arc. Dozens of gorgeous songs, both solos and duets, keep their relationship evolving despite the fact that most of the interaction is through letter writing. Credit has to be given to the director, Mary Jo Dupree, who keeps this period piece flowing gently, melodically, and emotionally to its satisfying finale. Perhaps the most outstanding song was titled The Secret of Happiness. Seeing this production of Daddy Longlegs was one of those such secrets. So was the fact that I beat my friends, for the first time ever, in the card game of Oh Hell. And I did it twice this weekend. So let's update the New York Times formula for 1914. If you take your pencil and write down, one below the other, the words Daddy Long Legs, International City Theater, and Two Card Victories, and then draw a line and add them up, the answer would be bliss. We now return to New York City and the play Good for Otto, presented by the new group. At some very early point in the exhausting three-hour marathon entitled Good for Otto, a young girl began crying. Apparently inconsolable, she was taken out of the theater by her mother. Why was she at a David Rabe play? I've only previously seen two of his plays, Hurley Burley and Sticks and Bones, one of the trilogy of Vietnam plays from the 1970s. I enjoyed them both, but neither are in the elementary school curriculum for intro to dramatic theater. Good for Otto concerns itself with mental illness. Two therapists, played by Ed Harris and Amy Madigan, work in a mental health center near the Berkshires and do their heroic best to help their patients. A who's who of calamities are thrust upon us. 
dead mothers, cutting, suicide, child abuse, hoarding, gay acceptance, and hamster love, namely the auto of the title. Therapy sessions happen around and around and back and forth, bizarrely interrupted by musical interludes of old songs. These group character sing-alongs are played at the piano by the hoarder when his story ended abruptly and for no apparent reason. Music is healing power, bluntly and repeatedly themed, both in words and song. About 30 minutes in, frankly, I was hating this play. Then I started enjoying some sections. Then super boredom set in, plus eye-rolling. Then internal groaning as this play churned on and on, consuming the audience with its simplistic preachiness. The director, Scott Elliott, made a critically bad decision to seat audience members on the stage. During the second, less attended act, a man sitting center stage was holding up his head while balancing his elbow on his knee, slumped over and visibly suffering. Was this intentional or unintentional meta? The cast was filled with veteran talents including F. Murray Abraham and perhaps my favorite performer here, Mark Lynn Baker. Overacting was the chosen route, which admittedly made some of this watchable. Long, insufferably overbaked storylines, particularly Mr. Abraham's, were so very dull. When this play finally ended, a woman next to me said, I need a pencil for editing. Kind words indeed, as I'm not sure the interminable unnecessary length is even the biggest problem. All was not so good for Otto. Next up, the Pipeline Theater and their presentation of Folk Wandering. In development for seven years in various theater incubators, the musical Folk Wandering has now been given a full production by the Pipeline Theater Company. This show seems to be about three women and their experiences in 1911, 1933, and 1955 America. One is a young girl of 13 living in a tenement but wants to be a journalist. Another is wandering the West during the Great Depression with her daughter. The third is in a relationship with a musician who looks like James Dean. Folk Wandering's opening number is Attic Song, in which the entire cast is rifling through the bins and boxes of a large attic, quality scenic design by Carolyn Mraz. All of these talismans and trinkets must have stories. They're not simply piles of junk. From this premise, the three different unconnected plots emerge. This musical's book was written by Jacqueline Bacchus, who had a major success with the terrific Men in Boats a few years ago. The music and lyrics are credited to ten different artists. There are some very tuneful songs here, and also some blatant borrowings, notably the Once clone. All of this material demands that it coalesce into a whole musical with a purpose. That does not really happen. Some plots are far stronger and clearer than others. Dashes of comedy with dollops of tragedy. Perhaps that is the plight of the female experience in early 20th century America. I loved the folk idea of the title to bind the three main characters' yearnings. The music, however, did not commit to delineating three distinct genres or one consistent one. The overall effect is still experimental, more than fully developed. Folk Wandering has been creatively directed by Andrew Niesler. Individual moments are very memorable. A strong cast commits to this material with well-drawn characters. The men here shine a little brighter than the women, which is slightly harmful given the book's focus. Dan Tracy, Devon, and Seth Clayton were all linked in one section and developed heart-tugging emotions through their supporting characters. In other scenes, they were each hilarious with expressively theatrical physicality. Like many of the songs and scenes in Folk Wandering, 
These actors were an enjoyable part of an unsatisfying whole. Now let's head down to the Soho Playhouse and Nanette. Based on a recommendation, I went to see Nanette, written and performed by Hannah Gadsby. Advertised as an award winner at the Edinburgh Fringe and Melbourne International Comedy Festivals, I expected to laugh, and I did. Cursive letters are like friends holding hands. Miss Gadsby's Tasmanian family tree isn't really branches reaching out. It's more inbred and resembles a topiary at the top. Her mother equates the shock of hearing that Hannah is a lesbian to telling her that she is a murderer. Nanette of the title is a barista shaped like a thumb in an apron. Presumably there was some sort of relationship there, but it's not really explored much further. There are laughs on order here. Like many great comedians, Miss Gadsby knows how to wring humor from discomfort. What makes Nanette so much more than a comic monologue is the willingness to pause from the funny and take us down to a much darker, more intimate place. She is very angry, and we learn why. The segment on art history won't forever change how I look at a Picasso. No more needs to be said here. Nanette is running until April. For those with the time and inclination to see something unique, memorable, hilarious, and devastating. If you cannot attend this run, a performance in Sydney has been taped for Netflix. Nanette is another show perfectly suited for the time in which we live. Ms. Gadsby claims this is her last show. Let's hope not. Next up, A Letter to Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay person in the United States to win a political office when he was elected. Along with the mayor of San Francisco, he was murdered in 1978 during his first term in office. Fairly grim stuff, and covered by the multiple Oscar-winning film Milk starring Sean Penn. The musical, A Letter to Harvey Milk, takes place in the spring of 1986, seven years after the murder. While the musical has serious themes, it is not a biography at all. Based on a short story, this show is about an older man named Harry Weinberg, beautifully played by Adam Heller. Harry used to be a butcher, and Mr. Milk was a frequent customer. Harry joins a writing class in his Jewish community center, eventually penning the letter of the title. Along the way, there are brief moments with Harvey Milk, but the show focuses on Harry, his wife Granny, and Barbara, the young writing instructor. Through 90 minutes, we engage in fairly familiar emotional territory, with the main conceit centering on homosexuality and acceptance, with a large schmear of Jewish humor. Here's an example. Who do you think I am, Shylock Holmes? Thankfully, A Letter to Harvey Milk has a very strong book, and the three lead characters are given a lot to say and think about. The story arc surprised me and was very effective in peeling back the layers within both Harry and Barbara and the letter that was written. The music and lyrics range from garden variety to shtick. However, the big ballads are very good and memorable, notably Franny's Hands and Love as a Woman. Evan Pappas skillfully directed A Letter to Harvey Milk. Interesting scene transitions and captivating lighting effects enrich the storyline in this well-performed production. Next up, The Low Road at the Public Theater. In one scene of The Low Road, a character is rambling while another punctuates his speech with individual words as commentary. When he shouts, Malefluous, my eyes roll back into my head. Unfortunately, I'm not the three-eyed raven in Game of Thrones, and I was unable to transport myself to another time and place. This ambitious comedy was written by Bruce Norris, who authored the multi-award-winning Clybourne Park. Both plays concern themselves with race and injustice, 
with the low road also questioning the validity of capitalism. The bludgeon is the weapon of thematic choice. Adam Smith, the man who laid down the foundation for classical free market economic theory, narrates this tale set in the early stages of America's founding. It's a big, bold new country and history is happening. A young bastard named Jim Truitt is raised in a brothel, winds up stealing his mother's money, buys a slave, and heads down the low road of capitalism. During his journey, he gets to stand naked, stripped of his clothes. He is shackled to his slave. He is just another bad boy capitalist destroying wealth with lousy investments. He is well played by Chris Perfetti. Less aggressively highbrow plays might be crucified for slathering on the racial, economic, and religious stereotypes that are in full bloom here. I found this pretentious drivel repulsive. The opening time-shifting perspective which begins the second act is particularly sophomoric. All of this self-important farcical babble is given a big budget and highly stylized staging by Michael Greif, he of Dear Evan Hansen, Next to Normal, Grey Gardens, and Rent. The costumes by Emily Rebholtz are quite good. If you bother to attend this play, stay until the end so you can experience the wildly ridiculous conclusion which bellows, in capital letters, CAPITALISM IS BAD! Maybe then you can explain to me the purpose of the mockingly disabled character who was kicked while in his mother's pregnant belly and now repeats what other characters say. Oh, and you could also decode why he wore a Hannibal Lecter-like face mask for part of the proceedings. If you need your fix of early American history, go uptown and see Hamilton. The low road made me regret being in the room where it happened. Let's continue with another off-Broadway offering, The Stone Witch. After having just endured the low road at the public theater, could another play assault me with the thematic bludgeon so soon again? The answer, thanks to the Stone Witch, is an unqualified yes. This play was written by Shem Bitterman. We are in a cabin in the woods where revered children's author Simon Greinberg lives. The handsome set promises Maurice Sendak. That is exactly where this play goes. From the Hans Christian Andersen Award hanging on the wall, to the death of family members during the Holocaust. Even the young naked boy from the controversial book In the Night Kitchen is referenced. Dan Loria plays the fictional author who is in a major writing slump, not having written a book in 12 years. His agent, described multiple times as a barracuda, hires an aspiring writer to help coax another book out of him. Into the woods and off to the cabin we go. Naturally, our genius is an irascible fellow, and drawn with every mood that could possibly fit into a long 90 minutes. The result is that the promising idea of this play is not achieved. Hupak Ginn plays Peter Chandler, the young man who arrives with his newly minted manuscript of The Stone Witch. The two men start down an interesting, albeit very brief, path of collaboration. Why is she made of stone? Unfortunately, the play takes a quick turn to Crazy Town and plants its flag down firmly. If you miss any of the plot points, don't worry, they're all repeated. On the plus side, I did leave the theater wanting to read the fictional children's book. And now, the next entry in the Encore series for 2018 and its performance of Grand Hotel. A 1929 novel begat a 1930 Broadway play begat an Oscar-winning Best Picture in 1932 starring Greta Garbo. In 1958, a musical called At the Grand debuted in San Francisco but failed to reach Broadway. 31 years later, a renamed Grand Hotel finally arrived, 
directed by Tommy Toon with some new songs by Maury Estep. To get there, the writer and original composers were dumped during the out-of-town tryout in Boston. Songs were added and cut, the book rearranged and refocused. Set in 1928 Berlin between the wars and right before the Depression, the musical became a hit, winning five Tonys and running for over a thousand performances. Encores produces fairly high-quality concert versions of forgotten or slightly flawed works for a week. This version in particular had a set which harked back to the original with polished staging, nice choreography, and impressive costumes. A real opportunity to revisit and reassess this piece. My memory of Grand Hotel is that the show was stylish but forgettable and boring. In 1989, critics were quite mixed to negative in their reviews. Tommy Toon's creative imagination was uniformly praised, and the show, quote, should satisfy those with a boundless appetite for showmanship untethered to content. Others had more fun with headlines such as Vacancies at the Inn and A Few Reservations About Hotel. Clive Barnes knocked the dull score, which had, quote, tune where its tunes should be. The Wall Street Journal used the words superficial, melodramatic, and pedestrian, with a story as empty as the lives of those who inhabit the hotel. Viewing Grand Hotel nearly 30 years later, there is no surprise revelation. There are a few good songs, notably Love Can't Happen and The Showstopper Will Take a Glass Together. The book is not good, and quite scattered, as evidenced by the multiple bellhop phone conversations with his pregnant wife in a hospital delivery room. The German boss naturally demands double shifts. Whether in the original story or not, it's another undeveloped distraction. The enjoyably oddball characters remain sketchily drawn, but the pace doesn't really slow down, so the overall effect is akin to entertaining blah. Grand Hotel made Jane Krakowski a star as the typist with dreams of Hollywood glory. The showstopper featuring Michael Jeter's Tony Award-winning performance as the terminally ill accountant can still be found online. Most of this cast sang the score beautifully, but fully developed characters did not really emerge. Given the show's pedigree, they cannot entirely be blamed. For musical theater fans, the Encore series is invaluable, informative, and fun. On the subway, a handful of strangers compared notes after Grand Hotel. Unfortunately for this show, we were all in complete agreement. On to Broadway now, and the play Lobby Hero. Off-Broadway's successful second stage is now also on Broadway, with a $64 million renovation of the Helen Hayes Theater. Never before have I seen so many people complain out loud about the seating. I'm claustrophobic, one woman behind me said. Everyone's shoulders seemed wider than the chairs. Armrests probably couldn't balance an elbow, but that's not really physically possible without contortionist skills and very friendly seatmates. Picture airline seating and then put more chairs in. That's the feeling. Putting that aside, the Broadway debut for this company is Lobby Hero, a 2001 play by Kenneth Lonergan. Michael Sarah plays Jeff, a 27-year-old security guard working the night shift in a residential building in New York City. This job is an attempt to finally put his life in order. Against his better judgment, his supervisor discusses a personal matter with Jeff. The only two other characters are Bill and Dawn, the neighborhood police. Bill is the seasoned vet, played by Chris Evans, and Dawn is the rookie, played by Beth Powley, just three months on the job. Everyone is flawed in this absorbing play. Lava Hero is certainly commenting on working-class New Yorkers, but is much more philosophical than that. 
Using comedy, drama, and very memorable storytelling, these four individuals express their points of view. Throughout the play, you may find your opinions about them changing. The acting is first rate. In choosing an imperfect cop for his Broadway debut, Chris Evans plays against the squeaky clean Captain America superhero from his films. He is excellent, fully committed to the menacing spirit which ignites the plot. Like everyone in this play, his character's judgment is under the microscope. As our central character, Michael Sarah's performance captures all the nerdiness and loneliness of this oddball loser who wants to be a winner in life. Maybe that is true. While the hero is so good that you can't really be sure of anything. Brian Tyree Henry as the boss and family man was perhaps my favorite performance. A decision he makes frames the moral debate of this play, one that is complicated by real-world concerns. I've now seen three of Mr. Lonergan's plays, including this season's Outstanding Hangman. I thought this one should have ended before the last scene, but that's a quibble considering the exquisite shades of gray on display in this outstanding production. From Broadway to now really off, off Broadway. The title, what's new groovy gang? Zoinks is the word that is used online to announce the show. If you immediately know what that means, then you like me, might feel a need to check out What's New Groovy Gang. A small company called Improvisational Repertory Theater Ensemble decided to tackle the legend of Scooby-Doo. If you are like me, you're no longer in touch with the Groovy Gang and need an update on their comings and goings. First aired in 1969, Scooby-Doo Where Are You was a huge cartoon success. Nielsen ratings reported that at least 65% of Saturday morning audiences tuned into this gang of mystery solvers. Another surprising fact, the characters are still running in new shows. Be Cool Scooby-Doo just aired its final episode this past month. The gang is living it up the summer after their senior year in high school. Along the way, they run into monsters and mayhem. All aboard for an improvisational hour of comedy. Let's jump into the mystery van with a cocktail and go for a nostalgic ride. When we take our seats in the teensy tiny performance space, we are greeted with a soundtrack that includes the ever-classic theme song from Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. Mars stars the Milky Way when they're grooving, who can say? Ready, set, house lights down, let's do this. I am very sad to report that this improv group is terrible. The effort is amateurish, unprepared, and unfunny. So many targets to hit and they barely took aim at any of them. Fred as a drunken frat boy was a funny idea. Put a scarf on him and make a joke already. The company's artistic director, Nanette Deasy, was Velma, the only performer who came close to being reasonably in character throughout this short exercise. As an unwelcome bonus, there's a visiting guitarist who sings four original songs while selling his hot sauce and CD. Not as a joke, and I'm not kidding. Zoinks, indeed. Next up, a dance performance by Ailey Two. On March 30, 1958, Alvin Ailey and a group of young black modern dancers performed for the first time as members of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater at New York's 92nd Street Y. Sixty years later, the company has performed in front of an estimated 25 million people in 48 states and 71 countries. Ailey, too, was founded in 1974 as a second company. Its mission is to merge the spirit of the country's best young dancers with the passion and creativity of today's outstanding emerging choreographers. From this year's tour, 
I caught the final performance of the all-new program which was presented at the Ailey City Group Theater. The three pieces were Road to One, Touch and Agree, and Breaking Point, choreographed by Daryl Graham Moultrie, Jules Delane, and Renee I. McDonald. I am not a dance expert, but what I saw from my seat was remarkable. Feats of athleticism combined with rhythmic grace. Varied musical choices punctuated with dramatic lighting. A truly impressive assemblage of talent. An excellent choice if you want to give dance a try. Ailey 2 showcases dance that feels approachable, massively energetic, elegant, jaw-droppingly physical, and hugely entertaining. Next stop on this tour is Kansas City. And now, I know you've been waiting for it, Escape from Margaritaville. Walking into the Marquee Theater with frozen margarita machines primed for consumption, I knew this jukebox assemblage of Jimmy Buffett songs was headed straight down the runway towards party time. The shocking revelation was that Escape from Margaritaville made Mamma Mia look like Shakespeare. For today's review, let's follow Mr. Buffett's lead. Why don't we get drunk and screw with this musical? First, let's be positive briefly. The men fare far better than the women in this production. From Bright Star and Jesus Christ Superstar, Paul Alexander Nolan nicely inhabits the part of Tully, the ultra-fit beach bum Lothario, who was the lead singer at Margaritaville, a dive Caribbean resort. His goofball bartender friend Brick is amusingly played by Eric Peterson. The winner in the performer sweepstakes was Don Sparks' J.D., the gray-haired party relic who is searching for his lost shaker of salt. The plot points are that obvious if you know the songs, and not nearly as stupid funny as they could be. Lastly on the positive side are Michael Utley's orchestrations. The music really sounded very good. Now, let's get to the meat of the matter and try to understand why the cheeseburger was not in paradise. Three main problems. Awful book bad choreography, and a too bland lead actress. Alison Luff has a nice voice, but meanders through this musical with little stage presence and no real chemistry with Mr. Nolan. Admittedly, things started fine, but deteriorated when character development through acting was needed to fill in the blanks of so many one-dimensional people. Vacationing in the Caribbean? She has copious amounts of sex and then turns into a cardboard ingenue? Written by television's Greg Garcia and Michael Malley, the book is the major flaw. Shooting for and missing over-the-top silly, the cornball story arc added serious to stupid. They're not just drunken wastes of human existence, they have real hearts. More than a few comedy lines fail to generate laughs, even amongst the singing Parrothead fans. The second act is wildly overplotted with too many songs shoehorned in. As for Kelly Devine's choreography, the very few moments of inspired ideas were quickly forgotten as the generic party ensemble executed high school quality maneuvers. It's copycat check-the-box choreography. Spinning clouds instead of the spinning cupcakes from Priscilla Queen of the Desert. The requisite tap number with the shiny outfit costume change from the Book of Mormon and others. Escape from Margaritaville is not the worst show ever and might even be improved with significant editing. Last year's Tony Award winner from Come From Away, director Christopher Ashley, gives this all a professional sheen, but it's slick cruise ship fun at Broadway prices. Buy a foam shark hat and take pictures with your besties at intermission. Now, let's talk about a really good musical, The Lucky Ones, from Ars Nova. 
past December, I saw Abigail and Sean Bengtson's magical and philosophical concert musical, 100 Days. In my review of that autobiographical piece, I mentioned that Abigail referred to an unexplained family implosion when she was a teenager. In The Lucky Ones, the couple has now opened up this story for the world to see. As was the case for 100 Days, this musical is raw, riveting, extraordinarily intimate and philosophical. Working with their book co-writer, Sarah Gancher, the Bengtsons take us through Abigail's childhood journey. Eighteen performers play the family members and friends of this story. The family is clearly a free-thinking, NPR-loving group. Mom teaches at their self-created school, and Dad tells the children to question everything. On the surface, everyone is open and enlightened. Underneath this idyllic liberal paradise, each person is naturally more human than that. Miss Bankston plays herself both as a younger version participating in the story and as the older one commenting on the events. As a result, the story is enriched from family history to personal reflective journey. At one point, she is standing near the back of the stage, but the anguish on her face was all I could see. With the lucky ones, the Bankstons have broadened their storytelling to a larger cast. Some scenes and characters are definitely more fully realized than others, but the variety of stylistic and storytelling choices are interesting. Director Ann Kaufman and choreographer Sonia Tahi once again give them a thoughtful creative staging. Most importantly, the music and lyrics often soar and superbly communicate the emotions of this tale. A highly recommended exploration of the circuitous process that encompasses growing, healing, and living. 100 Days is heading out on tour this year and is already booked for September at the La Jolla Playhouse. Make an appointment with these magical musicians. They are so talented, likable, and unforgettably real. And now our final entry for March. Galatea or whatever you be. For five weeks, WP Theater will present its Pipeline Festival featuring five new plays which have been in development during a collaborative two-year lab residency. The first effort this spring is Galatea or Whatever You Be. Why the Shakespearean title? This new play has been loosely adapted by M.J. Kaufman from John Lilly's Elizabethan era Galathea, written in 1585. Remarkably still relevant, the subject matter concerns gender identification. Every five years, a small village sacrifices the prettiest virgin to the god Neptune to protect themselves from ocean flooding. Also remarkably, climate issues figure into the plot. Two fathers worry that their daughters are likely candidates for this ritual. Dressed as boys, they are sent into the woods until the sacrifice is over. The two fall in love, not knowing that they are girls. Adding to the gender-bending merriment is the presence of Diana and her nymphs in the woods. Cupid and Neptune get involved as well. Back in the day, the boy actors playing girls who are pretending to be boys must have been quite the gag. Galatea is a fun piece of work in its current form. There could be more laughs with such an over-the-top story. I would add that my first instinct leaving the theater is this is prime material for a musical comedy. The dance of the nymphs, for example. Diana, nicely played by Eve Lindley, could definitely handle a show-stopping number or three. Bailey Roper's portrayal of one of the two young lovers was my favorite performance. Overall, a nice idea to adapt this great find. Hmm, I'm still thinking about Neptune's entrance music, though. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, we'll discuss the spectacular production of Yerma from London being presented at the Park Avenue Armory. 
and also a couple of Broadway shows, The Revival of Angels in America and Summer, the musical based upon the life and music of Donna Summer. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com.